Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Outliers, a Realm original. Episode 10. We used the moonlight to navigate through the trees. In the woods, we ran in single file, me in front, like fleeing deer, jumping over fallen logs and dodging boulders, running full out so that our hearts raced, and girl's evolving endothermic metabolism warmed her blood. She ran as fast as I did. Sirens blared behind us, but not the rapid-fire blast for an escaped mutant, the wailing siren of a fire alarm. No one came after us. No soldiers opened fire. I figured we had less than five minutes before the guards found Dr. Rowland, or before the gate guards recovered enough to warn of an escape attempt. We'd be nearly a mile away by then. I was counting on the no-drone fly zone to hold. I didn't really expect them to pursue us. From their perspective, they'd long drained me of any information I could give them, and Girl was just one of many captured outliers. We were a loss, but we weren't of a critical importance to them. As we veered out of the forest and onto the access road leading to the north, Something charged at us from the brush. For a moment, I thought it was a horde of outliers. We both stopped short. Girl didn't have her slingshot. I didn't have my bow and quiver of arrows, but we weren't without weapons. I pulled both pistols from my waistband, one in each hand, ready to open fire. Both were 9mm Glock Model 17. 17 bullets in each clip. No extra cartridges, so no reloads. I had to make each shot count. In seconds, we were surrounded. I didn't fire. Dogs. Half a dozen. My dogs. Tails wagging so hard that their bodies wagged right along with them. They'd waited for us. Unfailingly loyal to me. Their pack leader. Surviving by taking down small game in the woods. Thinner but not starved. My dogs knew how to hunt. Girl dropped to her knees. Arms spread wide. Hugging each in turn as they licked her face. This was the first time I'd seen her smile in nearly three months. She got to her feet and we started off again with our dog pack, north, toward home. While it took us 12 days to reach FOB far north on the southward journey, it took us 10 days to return to the compound. We traveled the path before, we knew the way, including the best places to cross the rivers, so we shaved off some time. Our pace closer to a jog than a walk because we still felt like we were being pursued, though we weren't. At night we were so exhausted we felt right asleep, 
curled up next to each other amidst our pack of dogs. Girl and I didn't talk much the entire journey, though one night I knelt at her feet and I told her I was so very sorry. She took my face in her small hands, tilted my chin so I would look up at her. It's not your fault. We both wanted to embark on the journey, but that wasn't what I meant. I'm sorry I couldn't free you sooner. I didn't have to explain myself. She knew I did the best I could. She knew I had to win their trust before I could engineer our escape. She didn't condemn me. I condemned myself. Girl had surgery scars on her body, over her abdomen, on the base of her neck, on her skull, at the base of her spine, exploratory surgery by the research staff. No anesthesia since they were curious about the specimen pain scale. She didn't want to talk about it. I stood up and held her in my arms. Had I known about this before, I would have killed them. All of them. On the tenth day, when we turned off the highway and headed down the access road to the compound, we could see the livestock in the meadow. The cows, the goats, the sheep, all grazing. The chickens pecking as usual at the ground. Even the pigs were there, snorting and snuffling like they didn't have a care in the world. I was stunned. I thought the wolves would get to them. But then suddenly Gray appeared, rising from the tall grass, a born shepherd with powerful jaws and big teeth. The rest of our dogs were with him. They kept the farm animals safe. The two groups of dogs, half a pack each, raced toward each other, yelping and whining with joy, a family united. I tipped over the high to key rock, collected my keys and opened the gate. We all went inside. It took us a full day to get everything back to normal. Chop firewood, build a wood pile, herd the animals from the fields into the Quonset hut barn, feed them all, light the hearth fire in the bunkhouse. Lots to do. It felt good. Later, while Girl was sweeping the porch and airing out the bedding, I strolled casually into the big Quonset hut, the one with the library, and went straight to a book on an upper shelf. It had a dimpled, leather-like cover with the title written in gold, in Latin. I didn't know what it translated to because it never mattered. It wasn't really a book. The pages had been hollowed out, making it into a box. Da had found it one day in the parlor of a farmhouse. He told me he'd been drawn to it because it looked out of place. The farmer who'd lived there had only almanacs and a collection of Louis L'Amour westerns, so that's why it snagged his attention. A book in Latin? The farmer kept cash stuffed in there, about $1,500 in bills, which Da just let flutter to the floor. Currency was obsolete, but he took the book. A novelty, he said. There it was, up on a high shelf. I needed my ladder to get it down. I sat by the window to open it, so I could listen for the broom straw scratching across sun-bleached wooden boards as girls swept, the dogs panting contently nearby. The book box wasn't empty. The first thing I saw was Da's keycard identification, still on its lanyard. Dr. Edward Allen Sanborn, director, research and development, VTB Laboratories. Underneath was his wallet, driver's license, a couple of photographs of who I assumed were his wife and daughters and grandchildren. $52 in cash, a receipt for a gasoline purchase the day before the change, and at the very bottom, a memory stick, a flash drive, a thumb drive, three inches long, hard plastic, black and red, embossed, VTB. I knew what it was. I could guess what information it contained. I knew how valuable it was to the government, to the military, and to the scientists who were entrenched at FOB Far North. I used a hammer to smash it, pulverizing the plastic as much as I could, crushing the metal, flattening it like I did the tin on my arrowheads. Then I threw it into the hearth fire, 
and watched as it burned and melted down to nothing. I didn't tell girl what I'd found, or what I'd done. Not right then. A few days later, when we were seated around our outdoor campfire after we'd eaten, after we fed the animals, I told girl everything that Da had told me the day he died. I let her know in no uncertain terms who he was and what he'd done. I left out nothing. When I'd finished, she didn't say a word. She wouldn't look at me. Hours passed. Finally, I said I would leave if she wanted me to. I told her again that I was sorry. So very sorry. She said nothing. Just stared at the flames. Like a bewitched outlier. The next morning, I was packing my things in the bunkhouse. Folding my clothes into a backpack. And she appeared in the doorway. Would you be willing for this day to be day one? That whatever happened in the before and after the change is forgotten? That this is our life going forward. We don't need to look back, to dwell, to blame. I believe to do so would be a waste of what life we have. I looked over at her. Yes, was all I said. She stepped forward into my arms, and we were one. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Girl and I figured we'd have at least a couple of decades before the first wave of exploratory scientists ventures into the contamination zone. I'd planted the idea of a century-long contamination. I like to think they bought it. We built a new cabin closer to the stream so that we could hear the water gurgling when it wasn't iced over. Erected it from the wood we transported from the sawmill. We used the truck and our precious gasoline, but it was worth it. We also constructed a wide wraparound porch so we could sit outside in our rocking chairs whenever it's warm enough. Our new cabin has a big central room and three bedrooms, including our big master, which has a picture window looking out onto the woods. Girl made curtains for all the rooms on an old foot pedal sewing machine. Her long chestnut hair has grown back, covering the scalpel slash scarves on her skull. She's steadily changing, reverting. Her lavender skin is one shade lighter, almost the opalescence of the inside of an abalone shell. The areas on her body that use cartilage for underpinning represent the most evident changes. The small slitted protuberance in the center of her face is evolving into an actual nose. A button-like nose with two true nostrils. Like a pixie in fairy tale books. Rigid cartilage is forming under the skin of her gill flap sound cavities, becoming true pinna. Conch-like outer ears. Human ears. Evolution is a fact of our life. She calls me boy. I call her girl. Since it's just the two of us, that's enough. The ruins of the old cabin where Da's bones are buried is now a picturesque mound of grass and wildflowers. Girls stacked rocks around the base in some sort of complex geometric pattern. She said that's what her tribe did when one of their members died. Not necessarily to honor them, but to acknowledge that they once existed. To bind them to the earth so their spirits don't roam. She said doing so is proper. We seldom mention Da, or the months we spent in the south, at FOB Far North. It's better that way. I've sorted out my conflicted feelings for Da. At least I think I have. For me, Dr. Edward Allen Sanborn and Da are not one and the same. One man lived in the before. He was immoral. Evil, in my opinion. The other, a diminished old man, coexisted with me after the change, 
He was good. I want to believe Daw loved me as I loved him. It's better that way. Girl and I occasionally go scavenging in the beyond, to the north. I once heard a phone ringing in an abandoned farmhouse. I didn't answer it. We explore not because we need much of anything, but because Girl is curious about those who lived in the beyond and about how they lived. Her inquisitiveness is one of her best qualities in my opinion. Lately, we mostly leave the compound to look for baby clothes and learning toys. We're stockpiling them for the future. Girl's swelling lavender belly fills me with pride and some anxiety. I've been reading every midwife birthing manual I can get my hands on. Girl isn't worried. She's happy. And serene. Everything will be fine, she assures me. Her hands cupped under her growing belly. I believe her. We intend to call our child Baby. No matter the gender. Girl and I would like to fill our cabin with the tinkling laughter of children. Like Da once described. We both want a big family. We'll see how it goes. I think about the father I want to be. Loving, first off. Tolerant. Patient. But firm, too. Worthy of respect without demanding it. Like Da had been. I want to teach our offspring the names of all the trees in the forest. The plants on the hillsides. What is edible, what is not. What is medicinal and what is poisonous. I plan to point out every star and every constellation. I want to show our child how to use tools and how to take apart motors and engines. How to hunt, to fish, to trap, and to cook. And how to preserve meat and can the fruits and vegetables we grow in our greenhouse garden. How to apply salve to open wounds to stave off infection. And how to sew up cuts and gashes on the livestock. I want this baby to be able to sew and mend, cook and repair just about anything. Just as I did. We intend to teach our child to read first thing. Well, after he or she has learned to walk, to use the outhouse, and to shoot a rifle. First letters, then words then sentences, then books. Thousands of books, both fiction and non-fiction. We have a library, after all. I've been writing this journal in the evenings for the past few months so Baby will know his or her origin story and what came before. Girl relates all she remembers, and I write it all down. Her earnest biographer. We don't intend to give these pages to Baby for a very long time, definitely not during those formative years of blissful ignorance like those I enjoyed in Da's company. But when he or she is older, closer to our ages now, able to process it all, so baby will be prepared for what may come, and why. It's only now, as I'm reaching manhood, that I've come to realize how important the full picture of the events that transpired, both during the change and after, truly is. And girl concurs. She sits in the rocker in a long cardigan sweater over a faded cotton dress, rocking and knitting. Not unlike a pioneer woman living in a cabin on the prairie in the years after the Civil War. While I sit at our long table, shirt sleeves rolled up, suspenders crisscrossing my back, writing this out in longhand, in cursive, like a settler from the same time period. Whenever I happen to glance up, so does she. We share a smile. We're a family. I've long wanted to be a writer, and now I have someone to write for, for our offspring our posterity, so the truth will not be lost. I don't know what our baby will look like, or what species it will resemble. It doesn't matter as long as he or she is healthy, but I am certain that baby will have a silhouette that's upright, two arms and two legs, humanoid, like me, like girl. We're outliers after all.
You're listening to Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski.